Good morning, everyone. It's a pleasure to be back. I was at Camp Kedron all week, and we had a great time. It was a fruitful time, so thank you for your prayers, and God gave us good health and great weather and, uh, yeah, great discussions with the kids about Jesus, and they were very engaged, and so the Lord was working and moving among the team as well as the kids. So thanks for your prayers, and keep praying for that ministry. Uh, one announcement, we may have some delayed responses with emails as... Laura and my family, so my family and I, Laura, my family, me, my kids. We're going to be gone for a couple of weeks. And uh, that starts in uh, midweek this week throughout Jan. And also the team is heading to Cambodia. So we have Joan and Peter and Kaz. They're going to Cambodia for a couple weeks to help with the medical mission and to spread the gospel in remote villages. So please be praying for them and look forward to hearing upon their return the great things the Lord does. And thanks to Martin for preaching in my stead last week. I have a couple of guest preachers in the next couple weeks. So looking forward to listening to those. All right, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness to us all, that you are an awesome God, that you are our Father who loves us, who's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness, that you have a future for us that's beyond our wildest dreams, that you are a God who cares, a God who comes near to us and stirs us up by your spirit to do your will, that it's you who works in us both to will and do of your good pleasure. And thank you for... Um, this nation that we live in. Thank you for our city, for our communities, and for everyone that's here today, everyone that's watching online. We pray, Lord, that you would bless and minister your truth, that people would be transformed by the power of the gospel, that there would be um, just dynamic change in our lives as we do turn our eyes to Jesus, as we do choose to follow you and lay hold of you and your promises, believing that you will in due season, bring them to pass. So we praise you, Lord, and we thank you for this opportunity to open your word. We pray you would speak to us and we'd be obedient hearers in Jesus' name. Amen. Genesis 32 is where we pick up today. Um, and we're going to talk about some of the Christian paradoxes that the Bible is filled with them. Statements that run contrary to what you would expect. Like Jesus said, the one who will save his life must lose it. And the one who loses his life for his sake will find it. And the point that he was making is no one's capable of saving themselves by earning salvation, but it's a gift received by grace through faith. That when you give your life to Jesus Christ, you, you're giving away your life, but you're receiving eternal life through faith in him. Paul learned that God's strength was made perfect in his weakness. That when he was weak, he was actually strong. Because that's when God's strength was now, he was relying upon God rather than himself to be strong. And for those who think themselves strong and lean on their own understanding, they fall short of walking in his ways and in his wisdom. And, they, and so it's in the weakness of our flesh that we find strength in the Lord. The disciples in the book of Acts, it says they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for the sake of Christ. And that's something that doesn't really make sense to us, right? That you would, you would be stoked that you were suffering shame because they did so for Christ who suffered for their sakes that they could be redeemed. 
And so they're like identifying with Christ in their suffering. They're like, just like he suffered for us, he's letting us suffer for him. And they were really excited about it. And God's word went out with power. I don't naturally connect suffering with rejoicing or the mourning being comforted or the broken being made whole. But through faith in God, we can understand how these things exist and that this is the reality, the spiritual and practical reality of life in Christ. So we're in Genesis 32 today, um, picking up our passage where Jacob has parted from Laban. They've made a covenant of peace and he's continuing on to his father's house in Beersheba. And as we'll, receive, as we'll see, he returned a changed man, uh, his, a new name, uh, a blessing, and a limp because God was with him and blessed him. Genesis 32, verse 1. It says, so Jacob went his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, this is God's camp. And he called the name of that place Mahanaim. Then Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. And he commanded them, saying, Speak thus to my lord Esau. Thus your servant Jacob says, I have dwelt with Laban and stayed there until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, and male and female servants. And I have sent to tell my lord that I might find favor in your sight. He's parted from Laban. Jacob has, continues that trek. And as he's going, this amazing thing happens. It says, the angels of God met him. And we're not told how they met him. It, whether how he knew that they were angels, the interactions that they had, but he recognized that these were angelic beings sent from God. And Jacob previously had affirmed that God had been with him that whole 20 years when he was in Laban's house. And now um, God reveals that there were angels encamped with them. Now the meaning of Mahanaim, it means two companies or dual camps. Remembering back a while when Jacob was heading to uh, Haran, he had that dream, right? And the angels were ascending and descending that ladder from the Lord. That was in Bethel. And now he sees angels in his camp on his return to his homeland. And at the first dream, he said, surely God is in this place. And he called it the house of God. And here he calls it, you know, two camps. This is God's camp. What, what a difference it makes when we know God's with us and he cares about us, that he's with us to protect us, that he knows us. And it's like when he's in God's house, it wasn't like this was God's summer home and he was house sitting for him. No, God was there with him. When he was in Bethel, he's like, this is where God dwells. God had been with him. And now it's like, this is God's camp. Wherever he went, God was with him. So it's really neat that it's not just in Bethel, it's not just in this unnamed place, but wherever God's people are, there he is. He's with them to help them because he knows every one of them and that should give us great comfort. Despite that covenant with Laban, Laban was still untrustworthy. Jacob could not trust him to keep his word, but he could continue trusting in God who is faithful to his promise. And we see him sending messengers ahead to his brother Esau because he had stolen his brother's blessing 20 years prior. And the Bible says that Esau comforted himself with the scheme of murdering Jacob. He's like, it's all right. I'll let that pass because once I kill him, 
it'll all be mine anyway. So he comforted himself in murdering Jacob. And Rebekah, his mother says, you know, go to my brother's house. And when things settle down and your brother's anger is not quite so hot, I will let you know. Now in 20 years, what had happened? No word. Nothing had been said, but God said, go back. Go back to your father's house in Beersheba. And there had not been any settling of this problem, this offense that happened many years before. It was a new challenge of faith to return where there was a history and there was, uh, yeah, unsettled business. And so he sent the messengers. They said, speak thus to my Lord Esau. Thus your servant Jacob says, I have dwelt in Laban and stayed there until now. I have oxen, donkeys, flocks, male and female servants. And I have sent to tell my Lord that I may find favor in your sight. So we see he's taking a very humble posture, right? He's calling him my Lord. He's calling himself your servant. He had stolen away from Laban. He didn't tell Laban when he left. But like a subordinate, he lets Esau know, I'm coming. And it's, he's not bragging that he has a lot of stuff. He's telling him, I'm not looking for a, a handout. I'm not coming to you because I'm on hard times, um, but because God has blessed me. I'm not greedy for more. I don't need anything. He, he wasn't laying claim to anything that was Esau's. Verse six, then the messengers returned to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau and he is also coming to meet you. And 400 men are with him. So Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed and he divided the people that were with him and the flocks and the herds and camels in two companies. And he said, if Esau comes to one camp company and attacks it, then the other company which is left will escape. The message is sent, they come back. Yeah, Esau, he, he got the message and, and he's coming to meet you with 400 men. And Jacob is assuming the worst. He's like, uh-oh, I've got like, my wives and children and donkeys and sheep and camels and he has an army with him. And our parting was not good. What are his intentions? And he's just worried about what's gonna happen. He's afraid, he's distressed and he hurriedly divides his camps into two. It's like he had been, this revelation of the two camps had come that the angels are encamped amongst them and yet in his fear, he divides into two camps, trying damage control, and he's saying, well, if Esau goes after one group, maybe the other ones can escape. So we're just gonna separate them. Two camps of his own. It's like his guilt and fear over what had happened. This, this guilt put him in fear. And it's true how quickly people of genuine faith in God can forget his presence and his promise. Like God had promised him, go back to your homeland and I will, be, I will deal well with you. And yet here he is panicking. He's not initially seeking the Lord. And we're, we can be very quick to give place to fear and forsake reliance upon God for help and salvation. And we see this throughout the scriptures, right? The children of Israel, God brings them out of Egypt with a mighty hand. They see those 10 plagues, the Red Sea. They come up to it and the Egyptian army is pursuing them. And they go, were there not enough graves in Egypt that you've led us out here to die? And they're screaming, they're crying, they're fear, afraid for their lives. When God's right there, like God's physical presence is there in a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. And yet they're panicked and want to return to slavery in Egypt just to save their skins. 
The disciples, they witness healings, like Jesus healing a paralytic, healing people born blind and um, deaf. They saw him, a man with a withered hand. He said, reach out your hand. And he reaches it out and it's healed. They saw these over and over again. And then Jesus said, let us pass over to the other side of Galilee. And what started pleasantly enough, soon a storm was whipped up. They're, they're screaming and afraid and saying, Jesus, don't you care that we're going to die? In Mark 4:38, it says, but he was in the stern asleep on a pillow and they awoke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Then he arose and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, peace be still. And the wind ceased and there was a great calm. But he said to them, why are you so fearful? How is it that you have no faith? And they feared exceedingly and said to one another, who can this be that even the wind and the sea obey him? Those are really good questions for us to ask. Why are you afraid? Why am I afraid? Why is it that I have no faith? I'm not placing my faith in Jesus when I'm afraid of anything in this world. And like the disciples, when we're troubled with fears, we forget that Jesus is with us. We forget that he is a savior. We forget that he only needs say the word and no harm can come to us, that just peace can come right into our situation, that he can save us, that he is our peace. We can forget God is God. We believe that Jesus is the Christ, but we forget God is God. And I like that Jesus did not initially rebuke the disciples. He rebuked the wind and the waves. He didn't say, guys, you're so stupid. He didn't say that. That sounds a lot like the accusing, condemning voice of the devil. He helped them even though they were faithless, right? You have no faith. Why is it that you have no faith? How is that possible? But he helped them, didn't he? So even when we have no faith and we forget, God is faithful. He did rebuke them for their fear and their lapse of faith. But if Jesus is our God then wind, waves, a lying uncle, 400 men coming to meet us, a brother you imagine is looking for vengeance and to kill you. We don't need to be afraid because he's with us and will help us. So these are pretty extreme examples, right? So I've never had 400 people coming to see me that I have you know, a problem with. That I'm a, I, I had done something wrong and it's reckoning day. It hasn't happened for me. I've never been on the sea when I thought I was going to die. I've been on the sea when I was seasick, but not dying. And so when we are feeling seasick, when we are afraid of whatever, God is able. He is with us. We can joyfully press on in obedience, strengthened by him. I mean, walking with Jesus is an amazing adventure. And he strengthens us every step. Because he's with us. Genesis 32, 9. Then Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, the one who said to me, return to your country and to your family and I will deal well with you. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which you have shown your servant. For I crossed over this Jordan with my staff and now I have become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau, for I fear him, lest he come and attack me and the mother with the children. For you said, I will surely treat you well and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which cannot be numbered for multitude. Jacob's first move was to take immediate action, a bit panicked, to divide into two companies, damage control. 
But then he seeks God in prayer. And it's really a beautiful prayer. It would be best for him to pray this first, but let's give him due credit that he prayed because sometimes I don't even do that, right? We forget. And he, he d- leads in a really good way in providing an example of speaking God's word back to God. And I like what Matthew Henry said. He wrote, the best we can say to God in prayer is what he has said to us. So knowing what God has said and who God is, we can repeat his word or speak it back to him, knowing that he will be faithful to fulfill his word, that it is his will and he's promised to do it. And so he identifies God of his fathers, the Lord, the one who is supreme over all. And he said, you told me to return to my country and to my family and I will deal well with you. And that he was unworthy. So he has this humble posture of like, I'm unworthy of your blessings. I'm unworthy of your protection. Yet I'm looking to you now out of desperation. I need you, God, to help me. He didn't lay claim to his birthright or blessing. Lord, you blessed me. You said that, well, he didn't claim the blessing right now. He's saying, I'm unworthy. I have no footing to stand on before you except your goodness and because you're merciful and because you're able to help me. And Jacob recalled what God had promised that he would make of him a great nation. And if the, if his, if the mother was killed with the children, wouldn't that go against God's word? And so he's saying, well, this doesn't add up to me. And then, then he admits that he's afraid and that's good too. He admits that he was afraid of his brother, that he was going to come and kill him. But Jacob trusted God to do all he promised. By faith, he went across the Jordan. He kept going back home rather than back to Laban or just kind of staying in the middle. He took a decisive step to cross that river and to head home. Now, God can speak to us in a variety of ways. The most common way or one of the most common ways is through his written word. And he's provided it for us so that we might know him. We might walk in his ways and any revelation by a prophet or a dream or a vision it ought to be affirmed according to scripture. It should match up. It should be confirmed by scripture. It's like God has given us the plumb line of truth and everything is to be aligned with that. That's how we can know what's crooked from what's straight. And so God's word, he gives us a perfect divine revelation of himself so that we can know truth from error. It's like when you're handling money or you're around, um, let's say, original paintings, you can tell the difference between a print and a painting. And you can tell what's a, a fabrication or someone's, oh, they tried to pull a fast one and, and covered up part of this painting to put it off as, to try to pull the wool over our eyes and say this is an antique when it's really not. And so we can become, by God's grace and through his spirit, knowledgeable of what God's word says and then know when it's God speaking. And what's so cool and why we put a big emphasis on reading God's word, both at church and uh, on our own, is God's promises are always yes and amen in Christ. And we read this, I know this, because it's written for us in 2 Corinthians 1, 20 and 20 through 22. It says, for all the promises of God in him are yes, and in him, amen, to the glory of God through us. Now he who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us is God, who has also sealed us and given us the spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. 
So it's like, well, there you go. You can know that there, there's a promise that God is going to keep his word, that in Christ it's yes and amen, so be it. God will bring it to pass. So we can know that we're saved through faith in him. We can know we're filled with the Holy Spirit because we're in Christ and God has said so. Not because I feel a certain way, but because God says it, I believe that. So God's word does not exist for us to just try to get what we want or to have our will or our way, but it gives us a clear picture of God and also provides assurance of what God has promised to do. And we can know that's true and we're to live accordingly. So we're not as born again children of God reliant upon a prophet or a priest or a pastor to be the oracle through whom all God's word comes, but through God's word by his spirit, we can have understanding and walk in his truth. Now, if somebody reminds us of what we said, you said you were going to do this. Now, it's usually because we haven't done it. And that can be a bit of a hit on our pride. And we don't appreciate that. But you know, God, he is faithful to it. It's not like he's forgotten and we're reminding him. But he delights and takes pleasure in hearing us say his word back to him. Like, God, you said this. And I believe you. I'm not worthy to hear your voice or to receive this answer. But God, help me. And he will. Verse 13, so he lodged there that same night and took what came to his hand as a present for Esau, his brother, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milk camels with their colts, 40 cows and 10 bulls, 20 female donkeys and 10 foals. Then he delivered them to the hand of his servants, every drove by itself, and said to his servants, pass over before me and put some distance between successive droves. And he commanded the first one saying, when Esau, my brother, meets you and asks you, saying, To whom do you belong and where are you going? Who are these in front of, whose are these in front of you? Then you shall say, They are your servant Jacob's. It is a present sent to my lord Esau, and behold, he also is behind us. So he commanded the second, the third, and all who followed the drove, saying, In this manner you shall speak to Esau when you find him. And also say, Behold, your servant Jacob is behind us. For he said, I will appease him with the present that goes before me, and afterward, I will see his face. Perhaps he will accept me. So out of his flocks and herds, Jacob gets this great gift to give to his brother. By my count, 580 animals. And he gave of his goats, sheeps, sheep, camels, cows, donkeys, males, females, and their young. And he said, go in droves. So the first, let's, let's pleasantly surprise him again and again and again. So that by the time he gets to me, he'll be like, like, what's next? Oh, it's Jacob. Oh, cool. So it's kind of his anger that he, that's still probably burning against me. It'll have a, it'll have time to relax and like, you know, maybe he's not such a bad guy after all. Perhaps he will accept me. And that sort of wistful longing is very similar to Leah when she's like, now my husband will love me because I born him these sons. It, it was a desire with no guarantee of fulfillment, right? She wanted to be loved. He wanted to be accepted. And they were hoping by their gifts or their contributions that they would be acceptable. Now, I believe we can do this same sort of thing with God. We try to make ourselves acceptable before him by the things that we do. Not realizing that it's, we could never be acceptable before God. We are always unworthy of God. 
And it's only by his grace that he extends an invitation to receive us. If we're trying to make ourselves acceptable to God, that's like Adam and Eve sewing fig leaves together to cover their nakedness as if God didn't know what they had done. We, can't ex- we cannot earn God's acceptance by gifts, by good works, but God's acceptance is guaranteed by all who, for all who come to him through faith in Christ Jesus. That is a given. That is yes and amen. You come to God through faith in Jesus Christ and you will be accepted by him. You don't have to wonder or worry about that because we will be accepted into his kingdom where he is preparing a place for us and we will be adopted as his own sons. And it's the natural order that as your kids grow up, they become increasingly independent of their parents. But as children of God, there's no adults in the kingdom of God. We are children of God and we are to grow in dependence upon him, to get more and more dependent and reliant upon him for everything, even to take the next step into a difficult meeting or a difficult interaction or, or something that you may be dreading. Praise the Lord for the gift of Jesus Christ for us, that he makes us accepted into the beloved, that he gives us the right to become children of God through faith in his name. Verse 21, so the present went on over before him, but he himself lodged that night in the camp. And he arose that night and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 sons and crossed over the ford of Jabbok. He took them, sent them over the brook, and sent over what he had. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of day. Now when he saw he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. Jacob exercises faith here in sending over his wives, his children, everything he has over that brook of the Jabbok. He sent sent everything over. And so he's walking through their abandoned campsite. It's kind of like when you're going on a trip and you want to make sure that nothing has been left behind, or maybe you've gone on the trip and you're just, that's kind of how it is for me. I'm notorious for like leaving shampoo in the hotel. Like I always have to do a final walkthrough and then do another final walkthrough and and open everything. Where did I put something? All right, good. I need I don't want to forget anything. I've just done it too many times. So Jacob's doing a walk and it was a large area that they were covering. It's night. His family is on the far side heading home. And as he's left alone, something really unexpected happens. It says a man met him and wrestled with him. So there's no dialogue. There's no discussion. This guy just grabs a hold of him and they start wrestling. The other man is the aggressor here. It's the other man wrestled with Jacob. And from what I know about wrestling and its many forms, uh, the purpose is to get your opponent to submit. You pin them, you choke them out, unconscious, you you get them to tap out voluntarily, and then you have won that round. Wrestling, it involves the whole body. It is very tiring. I remember... I forget how many kilometers it's like if you wrestle for five minutes, but it, it is draining. It will drain you. And this must have been the longest wrestling match ever because this man's wrestling with Jacob and he's not tapping out. He's not giving up. He is continuing to resist and he is not going to get pinned and he's not going to get choked out. And he keeps resisting all night long. Now a sumo match, it goes for a mere seconds. Uh, 
a collegiate match in the States that goes for seven minutes over three rounds, UFC, that's 25 minutes in a championship bout. So this just dwarfs them all. He's wrestling all night with this man. And notice it's capital M and capital H in your Bibles. Now, Hosea, if you want to turn there, Hosea 12, 3, it gives us some insight into Jacob as he's wrestling because there's not a lot of descriptions here until the wrestling match turned. Hosea 12, verse 3. This is what it says of Jacob. He took his brother by the heel in the womb, and in his strength he struggled with God. Yes, he struggled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought favor from him. He found him in Bethel, and there he spoke to us. That is, the Lord God of hosts. The Lord is his memorable name. So Jacob in the womb, in the darkness of the womb, he takes his brother by the heel. And here in the darkness of night, a man gets a hold of him and is wrestling him. It would be very unnerving. You're walking through an abandoned campsite and you feel this on your shoulder or around and you're tackled to the ground. And you're like, what, what is going on? Like, what are you doing? Let me go. Stop. Back off. Like, oh, you want some, huh? You know, <laughs> you're kind of shirt fronting the guy. Because of the conclusion of the prophet in verse 6, it seems like Jacob was trying to get away from him. Hosea 12.6, so you by the help of your God return, observe mercy and justice and wait on your God continually. So he's trying to get away and he's like, turn back, turn back to God. Jacob was afraid to face Esau and it seemed he was trying to get free of his assailant. It says that he wept, he's crying He's upset. We don't know if he's frustrated, if he's hurt, if he's angry. But the one thing he would not do is submit. He would not submit. He would not get tapped out. And as the day approached, the man showed he was more than a man. He just touched him and his hip dislocated. Has anyone here ever dislocated a hip? It is a very difficult joint to dislocate because it's one of the most stable joints in the human body. Takes a lot of force. And if you manage to dislocate your hip, you also do damage to soft tissues and ligaments and muscles and blood vessels. Needless to say, it's extremely painful. And suddenly, it's apparent that this mystery wrestling man had been going easy on Jacob the whole time because he just touches him and his hip is out of joint. I remember a young man dislocating his knee on my trampoline when he was watching my kids years ago. And when I... I wasn't sure if he was just hamming it up or if it was serious. And when I felt it, I was like, oh, this is not normal. And basically, when you dislocate your knee or your hip, you really can think of nothing else but getting it put back. You got to get it right. It's like in rugby, after the, the set is finished, they'll go to the trainer and put the finger back in or, uh, you know, kind of, oh, I've corked my shoulder and they'll, they'll get, kind of get worked on. Um, Footballer with a dislocated ankle, they're getting carted off. They're not going to keep playing. They're, the game over for them. I think there's been one time in watching Gridiron in 30 years where one person dislocated a hip. But it's very, very rare. But it's game over. Not for Jacob. Genesis 32:26, And he said, not, J- not Jacob, his man, 
let me go for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? He said, Jacob. And he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked saying, tell me your name, I pray. And he said, why is it that you ask about my name? And he blessed him there. And Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. Just as he crossed over Penuel, the sun rose on him and he limped on his hip. Therefore, to this day, the children of Israel do not eat the muscle that shrank, which is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip in the muscle that shrank. So Jacob's hip is out of joint, but he's not out of the game. His tactics, however, changed. Instead of trying to get away or to, to not be submitted, he surrendered, but he held on. So instead of trying to get away from the guy, he hugged him and he was not letting him go. And the man said, let me go. The day is breaking. It's time to go. And Jacob said, I'm not letting go until you bless me. So it's like, ah, how the tables have turned. He'd been deprived of a night's sleep. All his energy had been just used. And now he suffered a major injury. And he knew that the man that he was holding was mightier and greater than him. And he wanted a blessing from him. And he says, I'm not letting go until you bless me. That the man he was holding on to was greater than Abraham and Isaac. And the man asked as if he didn't already know, what is your name? And through tears, he says, Jacob, heel catcher. He said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. So the name Israel, it means one who prevails with God or God fights. So Jacob prevailed. He won not by pinning his opponent, not by choking him out, but by being conquered and choosing to hold on by submitting and not letting go. If you are injured by someone, it's very likely you might just shove them away. You might curse them, but he held on. He put up a good fight with the man who wrestled when he was restrained by humanity, but then we see that he's more than a man. He, he was God in the flesh because the word used there is Elohim in Hosea. Likely a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus. It's like when that divine power was revealed, Jacob finally submitted. He stopped wrestling and he held on for the blessing. And he mustered the courage to ask the man, what's your name? And I can just see him as the light was beginning to dawn, smiling, say, why do you ask me about my name? And he gave him a new name. This word pineal, it means face of God. So he believed that like I have encountered God and I survived. Now the text doesn't tell us the, the way of the man's departure. Maybe he walked away. Maybe he disappeared. Maybe he lifted off the ground. In other cases, like in, with Gideon and with Manoah, the father of Samson, the departure of the angelic being caused them to realize that this was the angel of the Lord. This was God who appear, appeared to them. Um, and I imagine, just in my mind, like if the man ascended before his eyes, he would realize the only way that I could hold on to this man is because he wanted me to. 
he wanted to be held. Because if he can put out my hip with a touch, how is he even, how, how could he even touch me without destroying me? But instead, he wanted to be held by me and the blessing came from him. We know that we sung it today. God holds everything in his hand. God has control over all things. We are kept by him. Have you considered that he wants to be held by you? He wants you to grasp him. He wants you to cling to him. He wants you to hold on to him when you're dealing with the worst pain you've ever experienced in your life, that you would be holding on to him, that he would bless you and say, I'm not letting go until I know that I have it. And then continue to seek him, continue to trust him. It says, just as he crossed over Penuel, the sun rose on him and he limped on his hip. I believe that the one who put his hip out of joint could have put it back without any sign of trauma. He could have been completely healed, but that muscle that was connected to the hip shrank. And so he was changed from that moment where he walked with a limp from that day forward. And the Hebrews memorialized this event. They never ate that part of the kosher animal, that muscle that would connect to the hip socket, just to remembering what God had done. Jacob, he had stolen a blessing from his father by deceit. Now he asked for a blessing from God and he gave it to him. Isn't that awesome? He walked with a limp, but it testified of his relationship with God. Like, yeah, I've been touched by God. I held him. He wrestled with me and he prevailed because he submitted to him. It's like in being beaten, he won. One thing that we will see in Genesis is that the names Israel and Jacob, they're used interchangeably. Sometimes Jacob, sometimes Israel. And Spurgeon observed it's fitting because the lives of many of the Lord's chosen people alternate between Israel and Jacob, right? One moment we're praising the Lord for the great things he's done and bold to speak his word. And the next moment we can be afraid because there's bad news or we're not feeling great. And we can be silent because of the fear of man rather than walking in the fear of God. It's like we, our soul can be warmed that we have a new heart being born again and we're accepted into the kingdom of God and yet we're depressed because we're not accepted by others. But as Jacob limped to meet his brother Esau, his weakness apparent to all, he discovered strength through faith in God who helped him every step. So this is a paradox. He, he lost the wrestling match, but in losing he won. He prevailed with God. And we're called to hold on to the Lord Jesus in faith, despite the fear or pain we experience. And it was only in being broken, Jacob was made whole. That physical dislocation led him into a deeper spiritual and practical walk with God. Now, if you're still in Hosea, if it's, if it's still nearby, Hosea 6, starting in verse 1, let's just read this for some personal application. It's a natural response without faith that when we are wounded, we can find fault with God. But see what it says here. Hosea 6 verse 1. Come and let us return to the Lord. For he has torn, but he will heal us. He has stricken, but he will bind us up. 
After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live in his sight. Let us know, let us pursue the knowledge of the Lord. His going forth is established as the morning. He will come to us like the rain, like the latter and former rain to the earth. Like Jacob clung to the man who dislocated his hip, the prophet Hosea, he says, return to the Lord. The one who's torn us, he will heal us. The one who has wounded us, he will bind up our wounds. That God would revive them. That he would raise them up and establish them. That they would live in his sight. And God has made himself known to us. His going forth is established as the morning. It's like, like clockwork, right? We set our clocks off of the orbits of the planets. The planet around the sun and the sun in its circuit. And Jesus is more consistent than that. You can count on the sun to rise, no matter how low you're feeling. And we can count on God to keep his word, regardless of what happens in this earth. And so God's people, we're called to seek him, to seek the knowledge of God, that we might know and remember what he's promised. And like you can count on the sun to rise and set at its set time, the rain to fall in due season, God will be faithful to heal, to restore, to revive, to raise his people to life with him in his sight. And this, it was only by faith that the children of Israel could say this in captivity, right? They're in Babylon for 70 years and God brought them out. God established them in Israel, which remains to this day. And it requires us to have faith in God, to cling to him tenaciously, despite the pain and uncertainty of life. One last thing I want to leave you with. After Jesus was raised from the dead, he was met by Mary Magdalene. And what did he say to her? He said, do not cling to me for I have not yet ascended to the father. What did Jesus do 40 days later? He ascended to the father. So what time is it? It's time to cling to him. We can. We can cling to him by his grace through faith in him that he will bind our wounds. He will revive. He will raise us up because he is blessed. And so let's cling to him. Let's not let go. And it's he who gives us the strength to keep on holding on. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word, for your, your power to save and even to wound that we might be made whole. Thank you for these paradoxes, Lord, that when we lose our lives for your sake, we find them. And when we, we die to self, we really find life with you forever. Thank you that you caused Jacob to look to you, to pray, to wrestle and contend and how he prevailed. And I pray that we too would, would prevail with you through prayer, through humility, through just choosing to lose, to die to self so that we might uh, be more than conquerors through Jesus Christ who loves us, who gave his own life so we could live. Lord, I thank you for this encouragement that even in times of immense pain and suffering, you are worthy to be grasped and clung to. And I pray we would never let go because you don't let go of us. Thank you, Lord, that you're with us. You won't leave or forsake us. And I pray that you would just increase our faith. You would turn our hearts to you with great rejoicing and step by step, we'd just faithfully follow you as you have uh, exhorted us to and commanded us. Thank you for my brothers and sisters here. Thank you for... Uh, the great works that you have for us to enter into, to repent, to love one another, to serve one another. And may we be your
your servants who bring you glory and honor in Jesus' name. Amen.